Generating traffic and sales can be a challenge for online merchants. But selling on the Walmart marketplace puts your products in front of millions of customers who shop on walmart.com. And right now, sellers who join Walmart Marketplace can save up to 50% on referral and fulfillment fees for the first 90 days. So get started today. Head over to marketplace.walmart.com savings. That's marketplace.walmart.com savings. Welcome to E-Commerce Conversations, a weekly podcast from Practical E-Commerce, hosted by entrepreneur Eric Bandholz. What is going on, Internet? Eric Banholz back again with another e-commerce conversations. I hope all is going well on the other side of the internet. On the other side of the internet from me, Mike, what's up? What's up, Eric? Good to be with you, man. Just right up the road, right up I-35, not too far away, right? That's right. Norman, Oklahoma, baby. I grew up in central Oklahoma and went to OU and then ended up never leaving. So still here. That's crazy, man. You don't meet a lot of people from Oklahoma, to be honest. I always joke that we're like the e-commerce capital of the world because like the last place you'd expect to see anybody in e-commerce would be in Norman, Oklahoma. But in some ways, it's like, isn't that the cool thing about e-commerce is that you can be literally anywhere. Like you would definitely not expect, uh, this is, I guess, probably the third e-commerce company. I Maybe we're more than an e-commerce company at this point, but that's probably the third one I've been a part of. And it's the democratization of the internet, the fact that if you've got a, an internet connection and you've got drive, you can build it wherever you are. Yeah, and build it you have done, I would say. I want to give our listeners a quick recap if they've never heard of you, which might be a little surprising, I would say. Yeah, so I grew up in Oklahoma, went to OU as a finance major, thought that that's what I was going to do, met my wife in college through a series of events. She had one more year of college after we got married. And so I knew we were going to kind of hang out around here for at least a year. And all the finance jobs are obviously not in Oklahoma. They're in you know, places like Dallas and the East Coast and stuff. And so ended up saying yes to a nonprofit ministry job. And I thought I'd work it for one year. And then I'd go work in finance. And kind of surprising thing happened along the way. One year turned into to 10. And I basically spent my entire 20s working in the nonprofit world. Got to 30. And thought, well, I guess I'm not going to do the business thing after all. And right around that time, my younger brother approached me with an idea to start a business. As an aside here, it's funny because a lot of people really associate me with e-commerce at this point. I did not do anything in e-commerce until after my 30th birthday. And it's just a reminder, if you're ever stressed out about like, I feel like I should be further in my career, I should have more figured out than I do at this point, don't feel that way. It's a process. And in many ways, my career arc is not at all how you would plan it out or what you would call stereotypical, but it's worked out. So anyway, my brother approached me, said, hey, let's start this business. I thought, this is interesting. I can do it nights and weekends and continue to do the nonprofit thing. That business got very big, very quick, hit its first million dollar revenue day 13 months into the business. I decided to move full-time into the business world. My wife and I were actually really, really passionate about the idea of giving money away. This was something that even when we were dating, we loved the idea. So we thought, hey, maybe we can make more impact in the for-profit world than we can in the nonprofit world. Moved over in the for-profit world, worked directly with my brother. The company was between 100 and 200 people during that period. And lots of highs, lots of lows, I think is how to describe it. Got the full experience, learned a ton about e-commerce. We shipped a ton of orders. I think we did something crazy, like a billion dollars in e-commerce over a seven-year period. About 2014, we really started to feel like, man, competing against Amazon is a pretty uphill battle. 
And we started to look at companies that have been successful in the marketplace. And what we originally wanted to do, Eric, is we wanted to buy some of these companies. But the more we looked at them, the more we thought, like, we can do this. We have the skill set. Why buy them? We can build them. So I helped my brother build a company that was in the kind of bedding sheets space. And a fun little artifact of that is the Beckham Hotel Collection pillow on Amazon, which has something like 300,000 reviews. It's like been the best-selling pillow for years. That's actually, there is no Beckham Hotel that's a, a, like an homage to us and uh, coming up with a name. We actually almost got into a lawsuit with David Beckham over that. And we're like, hey, it's our name. And then after that, a couple of guys that had worked with me said, hey, if you ever wanted to start something, we'd love to do it with you. And I loved working with them. I loved the culture and the department that we were all a part of. And so in mid-2015, we said, hey, let's do it. Let's start some kind of a side project. And we actually started with, we had no idea what we wanted to do, what we wanted to sell. We just knew we wanted to sell on Amazon as our first channel. We wanted to have awesome culture. We wanted to have a commitment to generosity. And those were the table stakes. And over a series of, I'd say about six months, we figured out that what we wanted to sell was insulated drinkware, but that came second to those other things. Uh, Bootstrap company, put my life savings basically into the company and have grown pretty rapidly since then. At this point, Simple Modern now sells in a bunch of different places, most of the major retailers and Amazon and D2C and even internationally, and have gotten some pretty significant scale and learned a ton along the way. So uh, love being able to talk e-commerce and the different things I've picked up along the journey. And I also love just like encouraging other people that are trying to start things that are in the process because I'm intimately aware of how challenging it is that we definitely, I mean, Eric, I know you know this, like we definitely didn't pick the easy path by doing entrepreneurship, but I found it to be really rewarding. And so anyway, that's the story up until this point. Well, so I'm interested in knowing like why is Amazon your primary channel? And then two, when you you started Simple Modern, I look at Tumblr's and it's got to be like the most competitive space that you could ever imagine. Like why choose that one versus many of the other products? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So the reason why we started on Amazon is probably twofold. One is we had just spent several years really competing against Amazon where we were spending a lot of money driving people to our website. There's a good chance that between 2010 and 2014 that I don't personally know of anyone that was pure DTC that spent more money in direct response advertising than us. We spent a ton. So we became, I think, intimately aware of the trials and challenges that come with having to day after day drive your traffic and gain awareness, especially when you're competing against Amazon. And so I think our just kind of general posture was, hey, if there's a way where we can let Amazon do some of this heavy lifting, we would love to do it. And we really know how to build and optimize for their system because we've built websites and we understand how algorithms work. And so that's part of it. I think another part of it was the particular market that we got into, which was insulated drinkware. The way it was structured, there were several really good brands that were already established. And this kind of also pulls in your second point. Like Yeti was there. They were crushing it. Hydroflask was there. You know, Corksicle was around. There were quite a few. Swell was really big at that point. But they were all focused on physical retail and and hitting a higher price point. So part of our whole thesis was, what if you did a premium quality insulated water bottle, but you're doing it at a more affordable price? And... We could do that by focusing online where a bunch of these other people weren't focusing. 
We also realized all of our competitors have built their business models around physical distribution, which means you do a certain set of things when it comes to your SKUs and your offering. What if we built ours around digital and we took advantage of all the advantages of digital? Like we can do a whole bunch of sizes, a whole bunch of SKUs, a whole bunch of colors. And those turned into really big competitive advantages. So we, we were able to say, hey, we've got more selection. We've got much better pricing, same quality as the best brands in the world. And that gave us the opening that we needed to be able to get the brand jump started. The other thing with your, your question about competition is, I talk about this a lot. Competition is a two-sided coin. And for most entrepreneurs, what they see is all of the downsides. So let me just flip that coin over and give you some of the upsides. Highly competitive markets are highly competitive because usually there are a lot of people that want to buy that thing. And that means that the rewards are really high and that the product market fit for what you are selling is really high. And that even by capturing a small amount of market share, you can be insanely successful. When you go in less competitive markets, that's not always true. In less competitive markets, often it's like, hey, I've got to get to 30, 40, 50% market share for this to be worth my while and for this to be a viable business. So I teach entrepreneurship at the University of Oklahoma. I'm the senior entrepreneur in residence. And when I talk to students about their ideas, almost always the idea, they're aiming for something where there's no competition that they can see. What I always tell them is when there's no competition, it's because one of two things is true. Either you have a truly unique idea that in 8 billion people, nobody else has come up with, which is an exceedingly small chance that that's true. Or the reason that there's no competition is that there's something about that market that makes it toxic that you haven't seen yet, that there's something, there's some kind of a fatal flaw. When you go into a competitive market, you know that's not the case. You know there's lots of buyers and that if you can successfully compete against other people, that you're going to be able to make significant sales. The other thing that kind of goes with that is the world is always at a deficit of excellent companies, always. Like, can we use another great fast food restaurant? Absolutely. Like, if you can do a truly great fast food restaurant, you're going to be successful. Like, are there tons of fast food restaurants? Absolutely, there are. But there's always room for more excellence. The key is that, yes, if you're going to be in a competitive market, you better be ready to bring it and you better be a good operator. But you actually, I think, have a higher chance of succeeding than you do of going into something where the size of market is very small. So, and some of this is also, this wasn't my first rodeo. So I've seen this advice before and I really like it that when an entrepreneur is near the beginning of their journey, pick something very niche and focus on that. And then as you build the operational skills, then challenge yourself to a more competitive market where the size of prize is larger and you've developed the, you know, kind of the blocking and tackling muscles to be successful in that. So like you said, we're in a super commoditized market. In some ways, that's what I love. I love the competitiveness of it. So you you talk about excellence and you're in a competitive market, you know, from a product standpoint, does that mean that you are manufacturing your own products or does it mean you're able to negotiate better or design better? Like where does that excellence come from with simple modern? That's a fantastic question because the reality, Eric, I think is that there are probably 10 or 20 dimensions that you can be excellent on. And we have competitors that are better at some things than we are. Like I will just clearly like admit that now, but there's some things we're way better than our competitors at. And so some of it is taking, I would say, 
with a sense of humility and accuracy, taking stock of what can we do at an exceptional level? And is that something that the market's going to reward us for? So an example with us, we have been exceptionally successful at parlaying digital success into physical retail placement and success and being able to make our success digitally lead to even more omni-channel success. And we've kind of built the company around that. Is that through like Google, like location marketing and, you know, targeting retailers? It's a great question. So you can do things like that. But in, in our particular case, I think it's been through a combination of agility and being willing to test a lot of things digitally and then flow those learnings into physical retail. Physical retail tends to move quite a bit slower. The planning, the planning cycles are a lot longer and it moves slower than digital. So because we are, I would say, digital first and because we're willing to throw a lot of stuff at the wall, that gives us a lot of insight into what works and what's likely to work in physical retail so that we're able to have this combination of staying fresh while simultaneously also being able to put our absolute best foot forward so that when we set something in a target um, that we know it's going to crush it and it's going to be what customers are looking for. And some of that is just goes all the way back to company structure. Some of the ways where we're, I would say, stronger than our competitors are due to how we're set up. And there are trade-offs that come with that. I mean, this is also your personnel. Like you think about yourself, you think about the other people on your team, what are your superpowers? What are the things that you're really good at? And how do you leverage those? To go back to the competition idea, when we were getting into the market, we looked at Yeti and a full out frontal assault against Yeti would have been the equivalent of, you know, World War One charging, you know, the machine gun nest. There's no way we would have won. And we knew that. We were rational enough to understand if I go after men 30 to 50, I'm not going to be successful. Uh, the outdoors, you know, hunting, man, 30 to 50, there's no way I'm going to get there. But because Yeti is so strongly entrenched and defined as that thing, they're also, even though they're a huge brand and they're a great brand, there were a lot of other ways that we could carve out market share for ourselves that Yeti was intentionally not doing or wasn't going to be able to do very well. So a good example here, I think that's happened in the last year Yeti has not historically been very focused on colors and the fashion piece of this, which makes sense. Most men, like, I, I don't know. Do you have a tumbler, Eric? No, I got tons of them. Okay. What color are they? Black, dark blue. I have a pink one. I've got a oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's go, man. You're, yeah, you're, might, well, you're I mean, an exception. Look at my studio. That's true. Like, That's true. You're a more colorful man. guy. But the average guy is like, yeah, just give me a black tumbler. Right. So when that's your core market, you know, you're not as focused on things like ornamentation. You're more focused on durability and ruggedness and stuff like that anyway, and, and hitting all these different use cases. So it was a good example of some of it is knowing, hey, what are my unique strengths and my unique places that I can be excellent? But then some of it's also like, okay, let me look at my competitors and let me say, where are they great? And then to some extent, making a decision to try and be awesome and excellent in ways that are not direct competition to the way that your competitors are excellent or awesome, which again, this is the benefit of a big market. When your market's really big, there's room for a lot of winners. When you're in a smaller market, it's like, well, I've got to, even if my competitor is great at X, I've got to be great at X and I've got to go head to head with them because there's a small market we're competing for. Yeah. I want to go back to launching on digital and pushing to 
bricks and mortar. Uh-huh. When you talk about launch, I assume it's both, but a like new product or new product design, different shapes of containers versus B option, the same container, but new, like you have like licensing and Marvel and whatever. Yep. Are you looking at the response from your direct to consumer on your website with your customers who you know are like your loyal fans? Or is this like I launch it on Amazon and I can see the velocity of Amazon sales and that's more indicative of what's going to move in retail? Yeah, I think it's both actually. And some of it depends on your scale. I think as we've gotten bigger and bigger as a company, what is happening on our website is more and more indicative of like what's happening in the world. Whereas early on, I think it was only like, you know, the true believers that were on our website and Amazon was a better proxy. If you look at statistics about where people shop, the average person, like, have you bought something at Walmart in the last year? Yes. Eric, have you bought something at Target? I mean, my wife has. I'm a little yeah. mad at Target because they, uh, they <laughs> right. stiffed us a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Have you bought something on Amazon? Yeah. Yeah. So you're basically the same as me and the basically the same as everybody is that we tend to use those retailers for different use cases, but everybody shops at all those. And so at some point, I think one of the advantages of selling on Amazon has always been that you're really just getting a proxy for that the population yeah. of like, what's the population doing? Another thing about Amazon that I've always found particularly compelling is they're exceptionally open-handed with their data. Like your ability to understand what's going on. Uh, one of the biggest insights that we ever had very early on, it seems obvious in retrospect, but we were trying to understand like, hey, what's the size of price in different markets? What are people buying? And we realized like, oh, okay, well, with reviews, reviews are probably coming in at about the same rate for everybody that like, okay, for every 70 tumblers sold or whatever, you're getting a review. And so we can look at reviews, we can go scrape Amazon's reviews, and we can work backwards into what are the best selling colors, what are the best selling sizes, you know, what's the size of the market. Now, since then, over the last two or three years, Amazon's offering way more data, like they continue to open up more and more data. But it's just an unbelievable tool for understanding the U.S. population, what it's buying, what are trends, what are patterns. So we, we've leaned heavily on that, and it's been invaluable. And then I think as we've grown, one of the things, one of the disciplines that we got into, which is really helped us, is that we just do a lot of surveying. And if you're going to be a digital brand, like you absolutely should be creating advantages and leverage the fact that Digital technology allows you to hear from your customers and talk to your customers in a way that really wasn't possible before. So a good example of this is we might say, we're going to launch five new colors in February. What are 30 options? And then, okay, we get 30 options and we put them on a survey and it goes out at 7 p.m. And by 9 p.m., we have a statistically significant, you know, we have thousands of responses or tens of thousands of responses. And so... In a day, we can go from idea generation to vetting that with a really large sample of our customers to decision. That's really remarkable if you think about it compared to traditional retail and the way that things would work. So I think that we've learned how to use digital to just be so much more agile. And I think this is a trend of where the disruption is happening to the incumbents. The incumbents are just not built for agility at all. They're built for efficiency, which really kind of pulls the other way of agility. Efficiency is like, I do the same thing over and over and over and over again, and I rarely change it. That's why I'm so efficient. 
Agility is the opposite. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to give up some efficiency to be fast and to be on trend. And for sure, in our category, it's it's turned out to be a more fashion-driven, trend-driven category. So the agility matters a lot. Let's dig into operationally how you build in agility. One of the biggest piques of my curiosity into what you've built is you say you're bootstrapped and you're a nine-figure brand. How does cash and inventory management and all of that work and especially like enormous amount of SKUs. How do you yeah. balance all that? Well, for sure. I mean, I have a significant, the, the gray hairs that I have are due to this issue. <laughs> you know, if you want to artificially age yourself, let me just go ahead and give you the formula. You start a bootstrapped inventory based company, and then you go through the supply chain disruption in the last two or three years. Like that's how you do it. So we've had a couple of periods where I'm looking at SKUs and I'm like, this says we have like six years for this thing. So you can get yourself into trouble. The wider you go, the more possibility you have of buying something that you don't like. And to add another layer, this is something I've talked about publicly some, we actually do different SKUs for different channels. One of the problems on Amazon can be if you're selling the same exact SKU in Target and then Target marks it down, either Amazon can cut your price or knock you out of the buy box, or somebody can go and buy all that at Target and try and retail arbitrage you. So we use different SKUs and that's protected us. It's helped keep our channels clean and reduce channel conflict. But all that does is it ups your inventory risk. So I think a couple of principles that I've used here. One is that we try to get into positions quick and sometimes small to test. So we really worked with our manufacturer early on to be able to have our MOQ on a particular SKU be 264, which is a very low MOQ. And we built an entire process around being able to spin things up in small quantities. I don't think we do anything like that today, but that kind of spirit was part of it. Another thing is that we found with our product, and this is another benefit of a big market. In big markets, when you get aggressive on price, you can usually move stuff. Whereas in smaller markets, there's sometimes the problem of like if you overbuy, if you just misjudge demand significantly, there's just no easy outs. Yeah. Whereas in a market like us, where it's like it's so enormous, if you really misjudge demand for your particular thing, you can just get crazy aggressive on price and you can just get out. And so that's the other thing that I've tried to breed in the team is that we don't get stuck in sunk cost fallacy. It's just, hey, if it's not working, then instead of being like, well, I'm going to wait 12 months to get out of this position, it's like, no, just set it on fire, get it out the door, get the capital back, take another whack at the pinata. Where you get into trouble. I mean, your, your product is nice that it doesn't, I mean, the design may not hit or the design might be kind of timely, but the product doesn't go bad after a period of time. Exactly. Non-perishable. I think that's a pretty bold take to be like, we're going to set it on fire because, you know, that may be driving people towards a lower performing, lower margin product versus one that is higher demand or higher desire. So yes. like, you know, clearly there's probably been some thought in that. Walk me through that thought process of lighting things on fire at the risk of cannibalizing your higher margin products. Yeah. So I think some of it depends on stage, obviously. 
when you're in your first two or three years, like this is a, it's an existential threat when you get a position that's oversized, right? It imperils our balance sheet. And so that's when it's like, hey, the most important thing is we have to protect the balance sheet. And if we cause some collateral damage by lighting this position on fire, then we just got to do it because we've got to protect the balance sheet. As the balance sheet gets more and more fortified, you can be more patient and more deliberate about how you do things. And even as you get to really big scale, as a case study, I'm using them a lot, but I mean, they're a great brand. So that's part of the reason I'm using them a lot. And they're in your backyard. The way that Yeti will light stuff on fire, they light stuff on fire. They just do it differently because they want to protect their brand. So during Christmas, it was like, hey, if you buy $50 worth of stuff, you get a free Yonder bottle, which is their plastic water bottle. They were clearly heavy on that. But instead of just being like, we're going to put that 40% off, they're like, we're going to throw that in as a free gift where it's not as clear that we're not maybe causing as much collateral damage with how we're doing it. So it happens all the way up is the observation I would make. Every brand does this. Another example is everybody, and I mean, almost everybody will sell the TJ Maxx. But part of the agreement is TJ Maxx turns through things so quickly that they don't sit on shelves. And so their value proposition is, hey, you can sell it to us at a price that it's not amazing, but we're going to move it. And it's not going to just sit there and people are going to see it at this discounted price. So there's a number of tools. Obviously, the one that feels the worst is when you're like, I'm just lowering the price on this for everybody to see in the light of day. And you want to avoid that. I mean, Amazon lightning deals and deals of the day are another good example of how you might do it. So there's a spectrum, I think, Eric, of how you do it and what the consumer perception of it is and how damaging it can be to your brand and other places. The goal is to get to a point where your balance sheet is fortified enough that you can have things. Sit it on longer. Bad. Yeah, that or that you bought bad and you sit on, you know, like at this point, we had a situation with Walmart where we bought some SKUs. We probably combination of logistics and, you know, just a kind of a, a bunch of things conspired against us where we had a couple of years of supply on some SKUs, but we didn't have to set them on fire because we were in a strong enough financial position that we were like, hey, we can play the long game here. So anyway, we've grown in it over the years. Have you sold to TJ Maxx before? Yes. What does that look like? Do you just reach out to them directly or do you work with liquidators who work with TJ Maxx? They reach out to you is my experience, or at least with us, they've reached out to us and there's several of them. I talked to a home goods buyer once and they told me, now I'm going to maybe quote this stat wrong, but it's something insane like this, that they turn their inventory 25 times a year. So if you think about it, if you're running an e-commerce brand, usually, yeah, it's like you're trying to turn your inventory maybe three times a year if you're really efficient and they're turning theirs 20 something times. It, It just shows you it's like this really different model where things come in, they go out, they come in, they go out. So we've tried a bunch of different, this is another place where, uh, so another thing that I'm passionate about talking about, because I think everybody who's running a brand needs to hear this idea. There is a thing called the spotlight fallacy. You ever heard of the spotlight fallacy, Eric? I've heard of it, but I don't know. I I couldn't describe it. It was the same with me. I was like, oh, it seems familiar. So spotlight fallacy is basically this um, cognitive bias that we have where we think people are thinking about us more than they are, right? So I do this embarrassing thing and I think everybody saw it. Everybody's talking about it. The reality is almost nobody remembers it because everybody's primarily focused on themselves and things are here today, gone tomorrow. Well. My observation is that we all can do the spotlight bias when it comes to our brands. 
So one of the things that I'll hear really frequently from people that run brands is they'll be at, you know, low single digit millions in sales, for example. And they'll be asking for advice. Like, how do I get to 10 million in sales? How do I get to 20 million in sales? And I'll make some suggestions like, hey, you need to clear this non-performing inventory. You need to test price points. You need to see if this channel would work, whatever. You need to maybe try a sale during this period, see if that generates traction. You know, just brainstorming with them. And sometimes the objection is like, well, I can't do that. That would that would lower the value of the brand perception. Or, you know, I don't know how customers would respond. And my piece of advice is, Customers remember a shockingly small amount about your brand. Once you come to grips with that truth, actually, it empowers you to be a better leader because like, think about it like this. At one point when Simple Modern was $5 million in annual sales, if I was too concerned with what customers thought, I wouldn't have tried a bunch of the things that have taken us to $200 million in sales. And it's just a very small fraction of our customer base that was even around during that period. And so this is the point that I'm making to people constantly is, number one, you cannot let spotlight bias prevent you from trying things. Because number one, even the people that see it aren't likely to remember it. We've done surveys where we ask people how much they pay for our products. They consistently are wrong. They don't even remember what they personally paid for our products. So when you think, oh, a customer might, might see this sale and forever, you know, devalue my brand, unlikely. It's unlikely that they remember that. What's more likely, even if they do buy your thing at a discounted price and they remember the price they paid, if they see it at a higher price later, they're just likely to think, oh, I got a great deal if they had a good experience with the product. I think the thing that I like about that mindset most is like, okay, you're doing a million dollars. Let's say, you know, it's a hundred dollar product. So what is that? A hundred thousand, no, 10,000 customers. So you have 10,000 customers that know about what's going on. But if you go from a million dollars to $10 million, you just yep. 10 x it. So now that's 100,000. So of your 100,000, only 10,000, only 10% at max customers. Yeah, at max, like worst that's case right. scenario, know about it. And 90% know about it in the future. So it's like, I agree with you. Don't be afraid to test the waters or to learn is ultimately the goal, you know, and, and learn quickly, I think is- uh, And there's a point- when you're probably at a certain scale and certain level of product market fit, we're on that slider, you start to become more concerned and more cognizant of potential brand damage. But the reality is you're usually talking about scale that's over 50, over 100, over 500 million in sales. Like you're talking about pretty significant scale before the danger of that should outweigh the willingness to try things and experiment It all ties together in this sense, Eric, that you learn by experimenting and experimenting has a cost and you have to be willing to pay that cost to get to the answers. And that cost sometimes is money and that cost sometimes is time and that cost sometimes is some churned customers. But ultimately, you have to be willing to pay that cost or you never get where you need to get as a brand. Mike, when do you want to buy your manufacturer Sorry, ask that again. You said when you want to do it. When you want to buy your manufacturing? Are you you ever going to build? Well, so okay, okay. So the way you asked that was kind of confusing because we actually started domestic manufacturing in Oklahoma. Not all of our products, but we actually started this about a year ago. Oh, sweet. So uh, during COVID, we saw the supply chain. We saw the U.S.'s relationship with China, and for the first time, I think it really was like, hey. We need to think about making products domestically. There are a lot of challenges. I know all of the ins and outs now, maybe not all of them, but I know most of the ins and outs of why domestically manufacturing is challenging 
and why most people don't do it. It requires real long-term vision. You're going to have to have significant capital. You're probably going to have to be privately held and not have outside investors because they're not going to be thrilled about the idea. But listen, I've had conversations with people who would know. Like I'm getting into rooms and conversations that you don't get into because I've done this onshoring thing. And there are people that are like, I can see a world where trade with China gets severely impinged, you know? And again, these are people who would know. So I think for me, we got to a scale as a brand where it was like, okay, we've got to get serious about being able to make our stuff. I'll give a couple of benefits, like obviously making it here, it protects you from supply chain and stuff like that. Some other benefits that we've unlocked to varying degrees, but exist as you make things. One is your ability to design products and to work with China gets better as you're more knowledgeable. Most brand owners don't know really much of anything about their products or how it's made. So their ability to speak into the product design process or even the manufacturing process and suggest ways to continue to gain efficiency or to make the product better is just about zero. And, you know, if you think about it, if this is you, if it's like, hey, you're selling a product that you know almost nothing about how it's made, like that's a pretty big vulnerability, right? Like your entire livelihood and your business is based on the the ability to more or less be a middleman on a thing that you don't even know how to make. So to me, we got a lot stronger as we started to understand how this stuff was made. And we actually, we work better with China and our ability to make it ourselves gets better. Like we de-risk the business through that. Another thing is, if you look at the balance sheet of most inventory companies, the biggest line item is inventory. And so if you can find a significant way to change the working capital needed in your business, then you can really turbocharge your business and what it's capable of doing. Uh, we're trying to leverage with varying degrees of success. Instead of having that money sitting in boxes of inventory that just sit there, I would rather that money be sitting in machines so that I can have less inventory on hand and I can, again, be more agile, right? And then finally, it's like, hey, there are some nightmare scenarios that I would rather it not be my business just goes to zero because I can't buy products from such and such country. So for all those reasons, we've gotten into it. And I would say we're two years into the learning process. I see it as probably a five-year journey that we're on before we fully see all the fruit of it. But it's been a hard thing, but it's been a good thing for our business. Where can people follow you, support you, listen to your podcast? Twitter and LinkedIn are the two best places to follow me for content. I'm on the Operators podcast with a few other nine-figure sellers. And then I also did like a, a couple of limited edition seasons of a podcast I do called Scaling for Good, which are really about leadership principles I use inside the company. And then I actually really tactically tell the story of how we built Simple Modern and what we learned along the way. So for most people, it would probably be boring, but if you're in something like consumer products, you might find it incredibly fascinating. So those are probably the best places to hear more from me. Yeah. And what's your Twitter handle? Is it just your name? Yeah. It's just at Mike Beckham SM for Simple Modern. Well, thanks for Coming on the show, I enjoy that thoroughly. I'm inspired to get more agile with my business. I'm going to talk to my ops guy right, right after this. So. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. And thanks for doing the podcast. Like, I love people like you that are helping to empower other people. That I, I know you're in the trenches of building a business, but you're also using your voice to help other people to be able to create things. And I always appreciate that when I see it. Yeah, yeah it's my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Keep on growing. Yeah.